Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, welcome to the show today. You're watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jensen Assey. We got Adam Levine on the show as well. Happy Friday, y'all. We're going to get you up to speed on what's going on in the world of crypto news and more, specifically on the more, because we're going to shift over to Twitter right now. Breaking news this morning that there has been a new Twitter CEO selected, former NBC Universal exec Linda Yaccarino will be the Twitter CEO as confirmed by Elon Musk on Twitter just now. So yeah, some new leadership there. What do you guys think? Does this dash some of the hopes of a more crypto or Web3 powered Twitter? This is a ad exec from NBC Universal, a titan of traditional media and advertising. What do you think this means? What does it portend for Elon Musk's Twitter? Jen, what do you think? Well, I want to mention that Binance just tweeted, welcome to Linda and said, let's purge the bots together. I wonder if oh there my. are some partnerships in the works. Who knows? Maybe they are just welcoming her, looking at her history, her expertise in ad revenue at NBC Universal. I can only think that Twitter is looking at their numbers and looking at how to get some of those advertisers back who have left over the past months because of the several different controversies that have to do with both the product and the people at Twitter. I pulled some numbers that Axios reported on. I don't know when they reported on them, but I pulled them earlier today. So they said back in October, Twitter projected revenue for 2023 to be at 4.7 billion. And then they adjusted that projection in March to 3 billion. And so I think they're looking at how to get more revenue to their platform, you know, maybe do some image revamping. I think it's also important to note that Elon's not really going anywhere. He's going to be the CTO. He's still going to be part of the executive team and he's going to be executive chairman. So I think he's going to have some, he'll still have some sway in what's happening. And I really hope that the crypto angle doesn't go away. I don't think it will. I mean, Elon recently made the Twitter logo Doge. Binance is tweeting about it. Linda has some experience at the World Economic Forum. So I hope that they continue to think about how to incorporate payments into Twitter and, and innovate. And so I am excited to see what happens next. Zach, I think I saw your hand go up. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting pick, right? It's, it's far more normy than I think people would typically associate with Elon Musk. And it kind of goes back to our little episode yesterday, when we were talking about the Miladies NFTs, right? This is sort <laughs> of 
um, you know, Elon getting on board the Miladies train and getting onto that NFT project certainly sort of cements maybe a perception that he's a bit of an edgelord or at least a meme appropriator. And that's very different from what we're seeing in the new CEO selection, right? Yeah, we're seeing someone who's probably more conversant in some of the mainstream narratives in the world rather than sort of the minutia of crypto Twitter and sort of that meme conversation that takes place around various PFP projects. So it is an interesting selection. I'm curious to see how it plays out. Obviously, the finances over at Twitter have been a bit of a struggle in the wake of some of the changes that Elon Musk has ruled out. So the question for the new CEO is, can she recapture some of that vibe and appealing to the mainstream? Or will Elon sort of continue going down you know, the crypto rabbit hole and other rabbit holes and appeal to a niche rather than the masses? I don't know, Adam, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that it's important whenever we talk about this type of thing to provide kind of the other side of the numbers, which is that, yes, ad revenue is down at Twitter, but if you look at their headcount, which was the vast majority of their spend, their headcount is down by far more in percentage terms. So again, what you're looking at is somebody who basically is willing to buck the social sort of pressure that exists out there, whether you're a company or an individual, to act in certain ways. And, you know, that has been something that he's very much been punished for. So again, like the kind of allegations that have been made against him, it's hilarious. I'm, I've never been an Elon Musk fan. I remain not an Elon Musk fan. But I view many of the changes that he's made simply because he's sort of shed light on things that were always true, but which were not at all revealed and which, again, were lied about by many of the individuals involved, many of the companies involved. Again, it's been such a kind of just revealing six months and he's been punished for it. The company has been punished for it really at every term, demonized in almost any way you can. Uh, and so I see this as a sort of as a way to remain in control while still pulling back some of maybe the people who are really kind of fighting hard because now they'll have to fight against sort of one of their own. Um, and the one of their own part really comes down to you know, like, do you think that the status quo needs to be disrupted in a fundamental way? Elon Musk clearly thinks that. We don't know what this woman thinks. She hasn't really been in a position to exercise her own judgment. She's been in a position where she's been working under, you know, for specific companies and apparently at a very high level and doing a great job. And so, again, we have no idea what the conversations happen. I really think this is thoroughly a wait and see kind of moment for it. But I continue to think that Musk is making, you know, like he's making haphazard, you know, dictator decisions. But they're not all bad. And if you compare that to many other sort of options that exist out there in the world today that Twitter indirectly competes with, that's totally different. Like nobody is doing this the way that Musk is doing it. And so I'm willing to, at this point, given the benefit of the doubt before I, you know, really make a judgment either way how it's going to go. Yeah. You know, I, I think some people might look at Linda and say, hmm, what an odd, very traditional choice. But I think, you know, when you get to that position in a, in a traditional company, you often have a really hard time. Uh, driving innovation and change in a way that you would like to. And I wonder if Linda is seeing this as an opportunity to get involved in, in some of this accelerated innovation in a new way with Elon. And maybe the two are going to balance each other out. It's all about balance, right? Zach? It's all about balance, like the X company, <laughs> right? The two, the two lines the two, crossing. That's right balance, the right? middle, in balance. Yep. <laughs> the left and the right veering together at the intersection of the present conversation. I guess Twitter still remains fascinating to crypto folks. Crypto Twitter is still fairly lively when other parts of the Twitter conversation have seemingly moved elsewhere. So we talk about Twitter maybe perhaps a bit much than we should, but it's certainly sort of a public good almost in the crypto space. Centralized though it may be, it's something where all these conversations happen really 
really in terms of setting the narrative and also dictating market activity. So it's something I think that Twitter is certainly a fair game for us to discuss uh, rather than it being out of bounds, but throwing it to Adam for any thoughts on that. Yeah, just, I mean, one kind of last thought is that people have, for as long as I've been involved with cryptocurrency, been trying to create what they call free speech platforms. And free speech platform really means well, I used to be on this other thing, and then I got kicked off of the other thing for a reason that was either valid or not valid, depending on kind of what happened there. This kind of, the first example of this was when, sort of during the scaling era, uh, scaling wars, right, where BTC, r slash Bitcoin, uh, and uh, uh, basically kicked out anybody who wanted to talk about scaling on chain. And so they created a free speech version of the Bitcoin subreddit, which was r slash BTC. And basically the only thing that they talked about there every time I was looking was how much the other guys were jackasses. Excuse the language. <laughs> so that's kind of the problem with many of these free speech platforms is that you don't get the ability to have a broad, diverse array of people who are using them. And it kind of dooms the thing because as we discussed yesterday, you can kind of just paint the entire platform or whatever the worst element that uses it is. Twitter doesn't really have that as a thing. Twitter is a broad platform. So that's why it's so significant that it's the thing that's made this shift. And again, with the, we saw recent news about Tucker Carlson, for example, again, like, the biggest television personality, the biggest cable news draw, moving his show to Twitter is significant. Uh, and again, like I'm very curious to see how all of that goes, not because I'm interested in any of the politics around this, but just because, again, like this is a, it has the potential to be a significant shift that could be very important, not just for the world of crypto, but kind of broadly for the world of social media, because monopolies don't survive having a significant competitor that can offer something else. And really, that's kind of the world of social media today is a monopoly. But let's move on to Miladies. We're going to skip Miladies. I think the only thing we can do with Miladies right now, Adam, is say Milady. And I, I know you missed it? out on it yesterday. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'll say it. <laughs> with all of us? Is that what with that? Okay, ready? One, two, three. Miladies. Miladies. <laughs> all right. We're going to leave right. that in this week. The Miladies are not coming back. Okay, <laughs> let's go off to the EU, talk about crypto regulation. So the EU is planning to make crypto companies Give up details of clients' holdings to tax authorities, according to a draft bill released to Coindesk. The law is set to be agreed on by finance ministers next week and will allow tax authorities to share data between the 27 countries in the EU. The interesting part of this is it will also require uh, firms outside of the EU who serve EU citizens to report into the tax authorities. I'm not quite sure how they're going to organize that. But Adam, I'm going to kick it off to you first. What do you make of this? I mean, it makes sense, but it's hard to do this stuff. Again, when you're talking about these types of international compliance regimes, it is worth noting that they said that if you comply with a local regime that is effectively the same, then you can, you know, then, then that'll work too. But I mean, the challenge is, is that if you're a non-standard project, if you're a project that doesn't have a ton of resources and you want to have EU users, then this is basically saying that you're not allowed to do that. And that to me, again, big warning sign big flashing, hey, this is something the SEC would do, right? Not really something we would expect out of Europe after the micro report. But on the other hand, you know, it, it is a problem for them, right? And it's the same reason why the EU is both, you know, like, hey, let's regulate stable coins. But also, by the way, if you do more than a million transactions with them, then probably that's too many. Can, they want to look like they're the, the sort of place that's embracing the innovation here. But they're really concerned that ultimately these uh, options could effectively outcompete, uh, you know, their monopolies, and so that's the problem, and that's where they're trying to. That's what that's what they're trying to do here. So I think it's tough for them to actually get compliance with this. But putting it on the books basically means that if someone doesn't comply, then they're de facto illegal, 
And that sort of is an end unto itself as well. What do you think, Zach? I think the EU sees opportunity here, and I think they're clearly ahead of the rest of the pack in establishing a framework, right? You can, you can, you know, pick at the fringes and say what parts don't necessarily fit the bill. But obviously, I think the EU has demonstrated leadership in trying to welcome this industry with open arms in a way that's regulated and compliant, right? Maybe more so than in the, than in the US, right, where we've seen regulation by enforcement and seemingly sort of an intent to push things overseas out of the picture rather than bring it in, in a way that makes sense. So I think this to me sort of fits that narrative that the EU sees opportunity here, whether it's France becoming more friendly to crypto firms, whether it's Portugal and its efforts to attract a lot of crypto entrepreneurs. You see a lot of these countries in the EU warming to this idea that crypto can be important for them, right? EU largely missed out on sort of the Web2 tech boom. All that stuff pretty much resides in the US. And I think they felt the pain of that. So they are saying, hey, maybe this Web3 thing could be something that the EU becomes known for 10, 20 years down the road. We better get ahead of it and we better sort of have a somewhat friendly embrace for a lot of these companies that have been shoved out of the US and in other jurisdictions. So I see the EU as sort of thinking thoughtfully about this stuff with Mika and now with additional sort of stuff that we're seeing emerge. Not to say that it's going to be right every time, but it's certainly a bit more welcoming to the prospect of this technology meaningfully improving people's lives rather than in the US where we see this technology being painted as a tool for scammers and criminals. So, I mean, I'm interested to see what the EU does and I think they do see opportunity and are pushing forward with it, but also also to Jen. Yeah, I agree with you, Zach. I don't think that we can say, you know, we need more regulatory clarity in the US and then see more regulatory clarity in the EU and then just be totally scrutinizing of it until we see how it actually plays out. Thinking about taxes, is important, right? We have, once we get regulatory clarity, well, we need to understand how that relates back to tax. So this makes sense, I think, after the micro report came out. What I am interested to see how it develops is this is also going to apply to platforms that are trading NFTs that can be used for payment or investment. And I wonder how they're going to define an NFT that could be used for payment or investment and when that definition is going to come into play. Adam, I saw you raise your hand. So I want, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, like an NFT that's tradable is an NFT that can be used for payment and investment, right? So an NFT that has a market value. So to me, that's a real broad definition. You know, it's definitely better that they uh, that we get like the legislative process actually, you know, going to make these types of rules. That's much better than the regulatory, hey, we already have all the rules we need from 100 years ago approach we've seen. But at the same time, just because they're using the legislative process and actually there's a transparency to it doesn't mean that we have to agree with the rules, right? That just means that there's actually a debate to be had there as opposed to the alternative in the U.S. where they're like, no, there's no debate. Don't debate this at all. There's no debate. We just have all the power. Shut up, right? So, <laughs> I mean, so like it's better, but I'm still going to disagree whenever there's something to disagree about, of course. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Significant use of the Bitcoin blockchain, thanks to the latest round of collectible token frenzy built on top of it, are pushing up transaction prices for users across the network. 
The average transaction fee saw a multi-year high of more than $20 per transaction on the 9th, according to BitcoinInfoCharts.com, before pulling back to around a $9 average for now. Depending on who you ask, all of this is either a good thing, a bad thing, or just something else that Bitcoin will need to survive as it has other challenges before. But the big question is, really, what, if anything, will the diverse group that self-identifies as Bitcoin core developers do about it? The discussion playing out right now on the Bitcoin dev mailing list has at one extreme the idea that the transactions need to be spam filtered or censored, depending on how you think about it, while on the other side, there's a strong argument that we should do nothing at all. Zach, what's your read on this one? Different camps making their voices heard, right? A conservatism has emerged among some of the OG Bitcoin users saying, hey, we can't have all this stuff. Permissionless innovation, not cool. We want Bitcoin to be one thing. We want it to be that thing only. You have another camp saying, hey, I thought like decentralized ethos, we could do what we want, right? This is a green field for people to do experiments and the market can decide if it's worth it or not. And I think it's really fascinating in crypto to see this stuff play out time and time again. Bitcoin historically has been maybe one of the more conservative um, you know, groups in the crypto space. I say conservative, not politically, but conservative in terms of resisting change. Ethereum has been the spot where all sorts of rapid innovations have taken place. Money Legos exist where you can build one thing on top of the next. And before you know it, you have this crazy money market lending protocol, whatever you name it, you name it, you name it. Bitcoin has been like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. We want to be one thing. We want to be one thing alone. And now all of a sudden, that conversation has really changed in the last two, three months. Significant activity is taking place on Bitcoin outside of the payments use case, arguably for the first time ever, right? So we're seeing these debates unfold really in stark terms as we're seeing in this piece. And it is kind of like the governance stuff that we talk about, often relating to other blockchains, but here on Bitcoin as well, where there's strongly held views, strongly held feelings, a lot of money on the line, and people with differing visions as to how Bitcoin can be its best self. So to me, this is just, again, another fascinating feature of the crypto space where you can watch this stuff unfold. You can watch dissent play out and you can watch how dissent will take, take form. Are people going to fork it and do something else? They can if they want to rage quit the entire network and start something fresh. Or will some other BIP or some other th consensus uh, emerge around various solutions? And so that's what we see uh, being facilitated by the whole ordinals rage. And it's going to be interesting to see what, like, what happens. Like it's, it's, it's TBD. It's entirely TBD in terms of what will happen around this debate. But I'll toss it to Jen. I think it's so important for discussions like this to happen. And if we weren't forced to have these discussions and debates over this particular topic, it would have happened later about something else. And so I think it's great. I think there's so much still to be solved and so much still to be built in the space. And if we don't have these conversations, we won't know what to build and where we're going. And so I think it's really important. I think this is another story that highlights for me, you know, we say so much, we want mainstream adoption. We want to onboard the next million or 10 million or billion people into this ecosystem. But the fact is we're just not ready, right? The reason that we're having this debate is because Bitcoin, this chain is congested because of all of this extra action happening. And so I love that we're having this conversation. It's going to inform how we build, how we move forward and make sure that we're ready when, when we want to uh, onboard that next billion users. Adam? Yeah. So again, like when I think that we can look back historically and we can see other instances of this conversation coming up before. The sort of first round of collectible token uh, fr uh, frenzy, mania, whatever you want to call it, although it was smaller, built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, came, you know, in the period from 2015, call it, through, you know, 2017, 2018. And this also coincided with what are known as the block size wars today, where effectively the folks who wanted to scale Bitcoin on-chain split off into a different chain, uh, and the folks who didn't, you know, also split off into a different chain, but that chain got called Bitcoin. 
Um, and so uh, at the time, again, like I was building platforms that were doing non-currency token use cases on top of Bitcoin. And the challenge we ran into was that fees started hitting 30 bucks per transaction. And that sustained pressure, again, for speculative use cases, for highly speculative use cases, it's not going to hurt you. But for the type of stuff I was doing where it's like, hey, a token represents a CD and it's not a speculative item, like that's just kind of that you can't you can't do that in practice. And so I anticipate that we will see, frankly, no action from the Bitcoin developers. I think that's the likely path to have happen here because I don't think there's going to be consensus on this. And I think that the fees will ultimately cause more bifurcation uh, where you see lower value use cases that aren't highly speculative moving on to other uh, other types of consensus systems, uh, you know, or higher layers on top of Bitcoin that don't secure everything into the base layer on a per transaction basis, because that's very possible. It's just that nobody cared. Transaction fees were low enough that when they were building this thing out, there was not a reason to do that. But arguably there is now. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how this conversation goes again. But I think the, the part that I like the most is that I think that for a long time, uh, sort of the folks who thought that we should not do scaling on chain and it should just be money, I think that they thought that they won. And I think that this reveals that, in fact, that they didn't win, that, in fact, all they did was succeed and chase off the first wave. But the urge is there. The urge will remain there. And it's a problem that they have to solve at some point, whether we're talking about collectible tokens or not. The blockchain cannot support global scale at this point. And the solutions that they've proposed at this point going on, you know, five or six years, are not in a place where they can even work in this type of environment. Again, that's one of the challenges around this is that it's made uh, the Lightning Network, which is supposed to be one of the primary ways by which people scale, and which is itself a great innovation, basically unworkable because you have to use a transaction to open and close a channel, which means that you're not getting away from fees until you've already paid a fee, which is the problem. So again, these are hard problems, and I don't anticipate that there are good solutions that will make everybody happy. I anticipate this will continue to be a difficult place for Bitcoin, but that as a result of the continued impacts of it, it will continue to get stronger. So I have a lot of hope here, but back to you, Zach. I will echo your sentiments and I will pass it to Jen for our last story of the day. Jen, what do you got? All right. We're talking NFTs and TVs. LG Electronics is seeking patent protection for a TV that enables users to trade NFTs. The device would be able to connect to an NFT marketplace, receive and display the work and fulfill purchases via the user's crypto wallet, which would also be connected to the TV. Zach, tossing it off to you. Would you use this NFT TV? I don't get it. I'm too dumb to figure this out. I don't, I don't get it. Like, wh- how do you do, how do you make the NFT go? <laughs> I, I don't know. How do you Is make the NFT go? The Zach with the hard hitting question. How do you do it? Um, I, I, I'm too small brained. I don't understand. Maybe this is, some um, real gigabrain future thinking when all of entertainment is tokenized and web three engagement works. Hollywood 3.0 is a reality, but I, I just don't, I don't get it. I'm sorry. I don't get it. Jen, I don't know. Maybe I missed something, but Zach, how does it work? You, how do you move you it? What, what is all it? All the buzzwords. What is it? And every what? buzzword. What? I'm <laughs> um, okay, so lost. Here's the thing. Okay. I don't know how it works, but I can envision a future, especially a gaming future, where this makes a lot of sense, right? The, the people in the Web3 gaming industry are talking a lot about, you know, all of your in-game assets being NFTs. And if you're already playing your game on your TV and you have all of your assets and you want to trade and sell them with your friends and other players in the game, and you want to bring them from one game to another. I see how this makes sense. In my head, maybe I'm not that smart. You would still need a console 
of sorts to connect to all these different things. And maybe, maybe there is like some kind of, uh, console partner that we haven't heard about. I have absolutely no idea. I'm just speculating, but that's where my mind goes. And that's where this makes sense. I don't know if people are going to be buying, you know, NFT as art and then displaying that on their TV. Although Samsung did release, I think it was at least one TV. It could have been more that has that capability. I don't know how many people used it. Adam, what do you think? I see, I saw you kind of shaking your head, but yeah. also maybe like low key nodding a bit. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, okay. So, so I'm, I'm going to school you both on this. Uh, so, so, so the deal here is that two things. One, although we are nerds, at least I, I self-identify as a nerd, uh, who uses a computer all the time. There's a lot of people out there who basically it's like my phone and my TV. And the reality of it is, is that today TVs are both super cheap relative to, you know, what you would have been talking about even just five years ago. Again, like go to Walmart and you can find 80 inch TVs that are very good quality for like 400 bucks. Like, again, that's the type of TV that would have cost $2,000, $3,000 just, you know, like five years ago, six years ago, something like that. And it's because of how the economics of TV manufacturing have made it so that they can produce these very, very large screens. So that's one thing is that this is the gateway and will increasingly be the gateway for more people to web-based experiences. You do not need consoles plugged into this. People are doing streaming stuff, all kinds of stuff like that. Secondly, this is forward-looking, right? Um, when you're talking about this, like, Again, when stuff gets that cheap, why would you buy a picture frame? Why not just have like a giant TV that's on your wall that can just display art where it doesn't look any different, but you never have to change the frame, right? And you just can have as much stuff as you want there. And then again, like if you take it from that perspective that we're moving towards digital art, then all of this suddenly makes a lot of sense because NFTs represent a digitally native form of art. Let me stop you there. That's yeah. the show. That's, that's it. the show. That's Come it, back everybody. Next time. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride, or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.